This module is on coagulation disorders. So with coagulation disorders, there's generally an issue with the body's ability to maintain homeostasis or hemostasis. So there's issues with blood vessels, platelets, the coagulation system, as well as the proteolytic or fibrinolytic system. The body's goal to try to control or its ability to try to control bleeding involves vasoconstriction, especially if there's like a cut in your arm, there's vasoconstriction first, then platelets actually will form near the cut and then it'll, the body initiates the clotting cascade to form a fibrant clot. Now, when we look at the, the clotting cascade, it's a very complex um, system that involves multiple different factors that all impact each other. There's two separate pathways. There's an intrinsic and an extrinsic pathway, as well as a fibrolytic system. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail on this, on this cascade, but if you want, I will link a description to the Khan Academy's YouTube video on you know the description and detailing of this system which they do a beautiful job and really help uh, help you understand how it works the two major players that you'll see in the intrinsic pathway are your factor 7 and your factor 10 factor 10 we use heparin to um, help anticoagulate patients um, so that's that's kind of important to understand that later on when we talk more about anticoagulation therapy now in this lecture, I didn't talk about every single disorder in, in the chapter in the textbook. However, I am going to talk about DIC, or Disseminated Intravascular Coagula uh, Coagulopathy or Coagulation, um, HUS, which is Hemolytic Uremic Syndrome. We'll talk about hemophilia, both type A and type B. Um, we'll talk about uh, Henach Shanlin Purpura, or HSP as well as immune thrombocytopenic purpura, which is ITP. This, this topic tends to have a lot of abbreviated diagnoses, um, but please make sure you read through platelet function disorders, thromboembolic disorders, as well as von, von Willebrand disease. So first let's talk about um, DIC. It's also known as consumptive coagulopathy, and essentially you have this, um, this cycle. So there's some type of trigger, a disease process, or an injury, that causes this cycle of micro, micro, microvascular thrombosis. And then the body um, builds up and develops these clots, and then there's a period of fibrinolysis or fibrin breakdown of the, or the lysis of the clots, which leads to bleeding. And then as the body bleeds, it, it, there's this initiation to try to form clots. And then essentially what happens is you, the, the patient uses up all their coagulation factors uh, until the point that they're just massively bleeding. And there's usually significant bleeding, organ failure. Uh, these patients, when we look at their presentation, um, the, the causes can be from a variety of different things. One, it could be from infection. Some cancers can cause this. It can be liver failure, uh, trauma. Um, and in even some cases, there can be uh, pregnant, uh, co complications in pregnancy that can trigger this. And then when we look at the patient, there's usually, they, they usually have some degree of petechiae and purpura. Um, they may have easy bruising or ecchymosis. And you can see significant bleeding from various different sites, such as from venipuncture sites, um, from the lining of the gums, uh, or even from surgical sites if they've recently come out of the operating room. And if untreated, it can you know, lead to tissue ischemia, so they can have this, um, you know, this darkened area of the skin, and which will end up, to uh, end up turning into necrosis, which can be pretty significant. Our plan for these patients is to do a formal diagnostics to make sure that we're dealing with a, a DIC. And generally, you'll know these patients are usually very sick in the ICU. 
<clears throat> they usually have um, some involvement with um, a multi-organ dysfunction, and they've they've had this bleeding or this coagulopathy going on for a period of time. But generally, they're when we do our lab work uh, assessment and evaluation, their fibrinogen levels are typically less than seventy-five thousand. Their PT and PTINR usually one and a half to two times their normal value. The D-dimer, which is the most specific test for DIC, um, is usually greater than uh, five hundred micrograms per liter. However, it often sometimes can be um, elevated from other causes or other inflammatory issues as well. So um, we, do, we do do these, but we don't just do that one specific test. We usually take all the information together. They all, the patient also has uh, some degree of low platelets, which, you know, usually their platelets are less than 20,000. And if we did a blood smear, we could see schistocytes on, on the blood smear, which would be specific for this as well. Our treatment's going to include monitoring our ABCs, giving them fluid replacements, especially if there's a significant amount of, of bleeding. We're going to offer transfusions. Um, our cryoprecipitate is going to be the best source um, for delivering um, fibrinogen. So we'll give these patients uh, usually a significant amount of cryoprecipitate to try to help reverse some of the, uh, of the process that's going on. We can also give them vitamin K. Uh, the textbook does mention other medications we can use, such as aprotonin, but it's not as uh, widely used. It definitely, aprotonin definitely has a place in the operating room, um, usually to try to help reverse some of the uh, bleeding that, that occurs um, following surgeries. Um, but it's, I've, not, I've not used it in the ICU to manage someone on, that's in DIC. You can give antithrombin-3 as well as, as an opportunity to try to... Um, help reverse the process that's going on. Next, we'll talk about hemolytic uremic syndrome. And here you have basically three things that are going on. You have a hemolytic anemia, a thrombocytopenia, and acute renal failure. And the common organism that's involved with um, HUS is E. coli 0157H7. Um, and this this is a well-known organism that has been known to cause um, hemolytic uremic syndrome in a variety of different patients, especially in children. But there are other bugs that can be involved as well. Um, so you, you want to make sure that you remember E. coli 0157 with HUS. Um, that may be a test question down the road. Um, you want to look at your bacterial toxins. That Basically what happens here is the bacterial toxins cause an extensive damage to the red blood cell and the lining, endothelial lining of blood vessels. That damage then causes a cascade for the clotting factors to initiate fibrin clot formation, and then the clots are then destroyed, leading to consumption of platelets. So here you have a fair amount of swelling and bleeding. On presentation, there's usually an incubation period, so these patients generally have um, this watery, non-bloody diarrhea that then turns into a hemorrhagic colitis. They have abdominal pain and fever. They can have other presentation factors such as uh, hepatosplenomegaly, hypertension, oliguria that then will turn into anuria. They can have cardiovascular changes such as hyper, hyper hypotension, edema, and then also CNS involvement, which would include tremor, tremors and seizures. Our diagnostic workup is going to include a complete metabolic profile, so we're going to look at their renal function. We're going to look and assess their BUN and creatinine, and if they do have a, a fair amount of uh, renal failure, we also want to look at their potassium levels, We'll look, especially if there's a hemolysis going on because you can have more potassium released into the bloodstream. Um, they may have a, reticulos a reticulocytosis, so we'll look at the RITA count. Um, we'll look at the H&H &H to determine how much um, 
how much anemia is involved. Uh, we'll look at stool cultures as well as um, we'll test for, for E. coli serotypes. Our plan is to be to provide supportive care. Um, <clears throat> we'll give them fluids in, in severe cases. We may have to start hemodialysis to help with fluid removal, electrolyte um, uh, clearance, and you know to try to help um, reinstitute some of that renal function. They may need transfusions to help replace blood products that are lost. And then um, our nutritional support um, should be should be there as well because these patients generally tend to be very sick. Um, and then we'll treat their hypertension for to try to prevent um, congestive heart failure. And we we'll also want to prevent um, encephalopathy, such as PRESS, which is your posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome. Hemophilia, there, generally there's a, um, the fibrin formation is too unstable to adequately stop the bleeding, which is generally what happens with both type A and type B. Um, it's the elect, an X-linked recessive disorder. Um, hemophilia type A, there's a factor 8 deficiency, and hemophilia type B, there's a factor 9 deficiency. These presentations as a neonate, they can, you can see them as early as at time of the delivery. And these patients sometimes come out with a significant cephalohematoma, or they may have a post-delivery subdural hematoma. Um, often it's you know identified when the child is circumcised and they see excessive bleeding at the, at the site of circumcision, or they can bleed from venipuncture sites or, or um, from the umbilicus. In older children, we tend to see more uh, bruising, bleeding from the gums, and they can also have or develop hematomas or hemoatherosis, which is bleeding into the joints. Again, our diagnostic workup is going to include CBCs, coags, as well as factor eight or factor um, nine assays. And again, to treat them, we'll treat them with replacement factors. Now, in the textbook, they go through great length to talk about different types of um, different scenarios in which you would treat the patients with the, the different factors, as well as what can happen if they become resistant to some of these um, treatments. There's also a formula in there for um, calculating the dose for um, including the factors when you're, you're developing. You could please review that. Um, be aware of it, but I'm not going to test you on it directly. Also know um, that in minor cases, you can use DDAVP, um, and you want to make sure you want to avoid medications that can cause or complicate bleeding, such as NSAIDs with GI irritability or, or, um, or even aspirin sometimes can cause, well, aspirin can reduce platelet aggregation as well. Next, we'll talk about HSP, um, and here you have an acute systematic immune complex mediated vasculitis uh, affecting directly your small vessels, and you'll find these IgA complexes deposited in the vessels, which cause a petechiae and purpura, um, which can lead to other complications, bleeding in the microvasculature, or bleeding into the small vessels and, and some of your organs, which can cause GI bleeding or glomerulonephritis. Usually, they have a preceding URI. The prodrome for these patients usually is fever, fatigue. And they have this classic non-blanching rash with a palpable purpuric lesions. There's a, a tetrad of, of symptoms that usually is this rash. They have polyarthralgia, abdominal pain, and kidney disease, or some type of renal involvement. Uh, it can affect, when, when we look at the, um, the joints that are affected, it's usually the lower extremity joints. And we'll, the, the unique thing with HSP is that the rash spares the trunk. When we're developing our plan, we want to look at labs that um, evaluate clotting function. So we'll look at our, CB, um, our CBC to evaluate our platelets. We can look at our coags. 
We can also um, assess for the presence of IgA complexes in blood, skin, and glomeruli to help confirm the diagnosis. Now, in treating these patients, um, there's about 90% of them will spontaneously resolve on their own without treatment. Um, but we can give them medications such as prednisone, um, one to two milligrams per kilo per day for two weeks. And we again, we want to avoid medications with these patients that can cause um, irritation to the mucosal lining of the GI tract or can cause bleeding such as NSAIDs. Next, we'll talk about um, ITP, excuse me. Next, we'll talk about ITP, which is an autoimmune disorder. Um, it, ex- it basically accelerates the destruction of IgA, IgG, IgM autoantibodies. And your platelets become coated with this autoantibody and then are removed from circulation by the spleen. Now, with these patients, um, when we do a bone marrow biopsy, we can see this mega kerocytic uh, cells and immature platelets. On presentation, these patients, usually the first thing we notice with these patients is they have this diffuse petechiae rash, or they, which you know can lead to purpura. Um, they can have ecchymosis. They can have some spontaneous bleeding or degree of thrombocytopenia. And, of course, with any other type of bleeding disorder, you can have other um, evaluations of bleeding, such as nosebleeds, um, menorrhagia, a GI bleeding, or a gingival bleeding. Our plan is going to include evaluating uh, CBC, um, looking at your platelets. Generally, their platelets are less than 100,000. Um, normal blood, they'll have a normal RBC and normal WBC. Um, on the smear, you can see these giant platelet cells. And then we can evaluate for a bone marrow biopsy, again, looking for, the, for those different types of mega uh, kerocytes. Um, for the acute phase treatment, it may resolve on its own spontaneously, um, but we can, again, give these patients steroids. And the dosing here is 2 to 4 milligrams per kilo per day, and they usually taper it once the patient's platelets stabilize. We can also give them IVIG of about 1 gram per kilo per day. In the chronic phase, or chronic patients that chronically deal with this, and usually they'll identify someone as chronic if they're dealing with the thrombocytopenia for greater than six months. And here they will come in for treatments for their IVIG, and they may require splenectomy to help um, reduce the, the removal of platelets um, within the bloodstream. And this can be done laparoscopically, um, and it'll help increase their platelet level, which should help in, in theory to remove or reduce the amount of thrombocytopenia that's occurring. Now, once any patient gets a splenectomy, and this this is going for the patient that has sickle cell sickle cell disease or a patient with ITP, anybody that has a splenectomy, um, we have to put them on um, post splen- uh, splenectomy antibiotics to cover for encapsulated microorganisms. The book lists Streptococcus, Haemophilus influenza, and Neisseria meningitis. Or meningitis. Um, I remember this. Um, the easiest way to remember this is anything with the Caucus. So it's streptococcus, pneumococcus, meningococcus um, is probably the easiest way to remember it. But these other organisms here, too, um, will um, are also encapsulated microorganisms. So you want to make sure that they're on prophylaxis to prevent um, these illnesses from becoming problematic. All right. This is the end of this section. I kept it nice and short, pretty sweet for you. Um, there's one more um, that I'll be putting together. And so I'll see you then.